All right, let's take our Bibles this morning, if you have one, and uh, turn to Psalm 100, right in the middle of the Bible, there's pew Bibles there, and then also the scripture that I'm going to be using today is on the back of the bulletin, so I'd like you to follow that. But Psalm 100. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you this morning for all that you have given. We know you are great beyond our thinking. But Lord, you've given us who you are in your word and in creation. And we thank you, Lord, that we human beings could actually come to a place in our life where we know the God who created the heaven and the earth. And that's awesome. But Lord, there are some who have not come to that place yet. I pray that the word of God may move them there and may challenge them in their own life and thinking that someday they have to stand before God. I pray, Lord, you prepare them for that day. You would prepare them with the person that can only prepare us, Jesus Christ. Thank you for him. Thank you that he's the solution. Lord, we'll give you praise for what you'll do in Christ's name. Amen. In this passage of Scripture, Psalm 100, I have to ask a few questions before I look at this psalm again. Because I'm I'm, I'm preaching on, really, the human being is is uniquely created and is also uniquely responsible at the same time. A human... Who is this creature? What is this creature? Where did this creature come from? What is the purpose of our existence as human beings? These are probably the most profound questions that any human being could ask. Questions like these may seem very elementary. Yet, if we search out the halls of learning and dive into the minds of those who dare to answer and find answers to those questions, you would find yourself drowning in a sea of information. There are books upon shelves upon shelves upon shelves of books trying to seek out the answers to those questions. Ironically, very few have nailed the answers down. And the reason why is because Before they can find out what they are, they die. So this morning I would like to consider really two major points from this passage. This psalm speaks of how unique and special the human being actually is. Because we were actually created, in verse number one, for joy. Psalm 100, verse 1, for joy. We were created also, in verse 2, to serve. We were created, in verse 3, to know. We were created, in the latter verses, in verse 4, to enter God's courts. We were created to give thanks, the last passage of Scripture in this this, uh, psalm. But the key here is that 
we cannot be joyful, we cannot serve, we cannot enter into God's presence, we cannot genuinely give thanks unless we are connected to the Creator and have fellowship with Him. That's the only way because every one of those passages of Scriptures, if you notice, it's connected to the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, coming to His courts with thanksgiving because it's all in connection to the Lord. It's in connection specifically to the Creator. And look at verse number 3. And here is the first major point, is that as a human being, you are uniquely created. Verse 3, it says, Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who has made us, and not we Ourselves. Let me just stop there for that main heading. That human beings stand head and shoulders above all other creatures. Why? Only one adequate answer. They were created in the semblance of the living, eternal God. The God who's created the heavens and the earth. The God actually who's created everything. Now, you may be thinking, that seems to be a a little bit far-fetched, especially speaking so dogmatically in such a pluralistic age. But if anyone is honest, if they're honest with the evidence, they must conclude the human being is like no other creature. In your bulletins, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over the earth, and over every cre- uh, creeping thing that creeps on the earth. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. So that means that human beings were created by the Creator with, a, with very unique capacities. Matter of fact, I was thinking about six capacities that are related to human beings. Really, when taken as a whole, it really makes them absolutely different from all of creation. Here's the first capacity that we have. We all have. We have a cerebral capacity. That means that humans have the ability to reason, to judge, to think analytically, to learn, to understand. Take, for example, humans who are able to take complicated symbolism called language, and actually learn it. And not only learned it, but they could speak it, and they could write it. They can communicate thoughts to other people and emotions and their will to others capable of a similar relationship. Other creatures do not have this ability. They have a limited They have limited ways to communicate, but never to the extent humans communicate. Also, the human mind exhibits a remarkable ability to understand ethical problems. 
and philosophical concepts. Can other creatures ever come up with the theory of relativity? Or the awareness that there's particles flying around us, all around us, atomic particles, and without them, everything would fall apart? Could any other creature understand that except a human being? See, humans, human minds can seriously conceive of these things, although they may not understand them fully. I heard of a missionary once who told of a story of uh, a young man in this nomad tribe, never learned a language, never, I mean, never uh, learned to, uh, his language had no alphabet, it had, uh, he had no ability to write anything down. He can speak, of course, but the testimony was that the unique capacity of the human mind in this young man living in the bush of Indonesia He doesn't know how to read or write. His language was not yet alphabetized, yet he was far from ignorant. When given given to him a broken-down Briggs and Stratton engine mounted on an old lawnmower, he figures out how it works. He takes it apart and finds out what's wrong with it. He devises from his own humble means parts that fix the engine and he actually starts it up and he never saw a lawnmower before in his life. Incredible. How do you explain the human ability to conceive and fashion and utilize tools? It shows the cerebral capacity which distinguishes human beings from subhuman creatures in a large way, in a big way. As does this next capacity, that human beings also have community capacity. That is, the way humans have a keen sense of community, which each, with, really with each other and with the rest of creation. No other creature experiences the profoundness of interpersonal harmony found within human marriage. In the Bible, after the first human being was created, Adam, the Bible says that he had no one to have fellowship with. It says the man gives names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. For Adam, for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. See, for Adam, none of the animals were capable of fellowship with him. That left man lonely because he was without companionship. Only a woman that was created from out of Adam could have an in-depth personal relationship with him. So there is a distinct line between humans and the rest of creations. Humans also desire friendships with other human beings outside of marriage, and usually those friendships are maintained lifelong. The sense of community, the sense of friendship, the sense of immediate and extended families are common fabric in human existence. Matter of fact, many of you for this holiday are going to trek off to some family member, right, and get together and then eat another Thanksgiving meal after today. So, uh, you know, at the end of 
Thanksgiving, you're all sick of turkey, right? You're sick of ham, you're sick of all the traditional foods, and you want to just go to Burger King and have a hamburger or something like that. That's what usually happens to me. I don't want any more turkey. I had enough turkey sandwich, turkey this, turkey that. I had enough of turkey. But nonetheless, we get together with family and friends to enjoy food, to enjoy each other. Uh, we, are, we are endowed with the ability to rule over the creation. We, are, we use animal kingdom and the vegetable kingdom for our own good. See, humans are in a position which makes them distinct and superior to all the rest of creation. Internally, humans experience things with great force indicating humans are not just material. They have an immaterial part to them, and that immaterial part is called the conscience, the soul. The immaterial part of humans in which they have an innate ability to know what is right and, to, and what is wrong. Where did that come from? If they have committed a wrong, they, they feel it inside. It gnaws, has a knowing sense that something's wrong and needs to be made right. The force of wrong thought or a perceived action is felt upon the conscience. The moral ability makes man correspondingly accountable to his fellow man, to his world, and to his God. How is it that human beings know murder is wrong, or lying is wrong, or stealing is wrong? How do we know that? May I infer that someone who knows the standard has placed that moral standard within our own soul, and that was placed there by the creator, our own God. Governments and societies, what do they do? They set up laws to keep humans accountable, not animals. Humans, because they are moral beings, have the capacity of being accountable and held responsible for their actions, for their words, and for their behaviors. Animals have no capacity to discern right and wrong on their own, let alone have the capacity to be accountable for action and behavior. A fourth thing is that humans have a corporeal capacity. They occupy a, phys a physical body, maybe a body uniquely designed for life on earth. That is, human beings are very similar to the other, other animals in that way, but our bodies have been given abilities like sight, hearing, a sense of taste, touch, and smell, that humans have a greater sense of what other parts of creation have to offer them. Humans learn to use them according to their own understanding in the sense they learn to use them to uh, enjoy life. Isn't it great that food actually tastes good? It's just not like eating sawdust or styrofoam. I mean, who would want to do that? We would all be very skinny if that happened. See, the thing is that food tastes good. All right? We crave food. Sometimes we think about it. You know, you get hungry, your stomach starts growling and, growling, and you want, you're thinking about your favorite meal or whatever it is. See, we have the capacity to enjoy things because God created it that way. 
And humans are not just corporeal, but have also a celestial capacity. That we're spiritual beings. We are self-conscious of a spiritual element. We can think outside of ourselves. Humans want to worship. They want it to be related to God in some way. And in any part of the world any human being lives, then you're going to find evidence that there is worship. You're going to find altars, you're going to find idols, you're going to find shrines, you're going to find churches, you're going to find deities, you're going to find that people are created to worship. Of course, this is where we go terribly wrong because of our understanding is darkened and, our, and we're dead in this area, we're dead to God, so we come up with all kinds of religions. That's why there's so many religions in the, in the world, because we came up with them. We didn't know what to do with it. We have this in- incredible capacity to worship someone, something beyond and greater than ourselves. So one will search in vain to find animals and set them up, set up altars and form shapes out of different materials or they will worship things like money or power or prestige. We have, there's, there's thousands of idols that we make, and we make them our God. And you know what an idol is? An idol is simply what you really love, what you love. Instead of giving your affections to God who created you, you give your affections to what you love. And what you love, you will do. What you love, you will become. That's why the Bible says that if you worship idols, you will become like them. The reason why is because you love them. See, humans display these capacities on such a grand scale because they were patterned after an archetype. Yes, after God himself. We were created in the image of God. But also human beings have a carbon copy capacity. That man is created in the image and likeness of God. That is the one capacity that includes all the above, which makes man uniquely different from all the rest of creation. That man is more like God than all the rest of creation. Everything about man points back to God identifying man as absolutely different. The creature was created in the likeness of the creator. See, we are unique. Why? It says in our passage of scripture, because God has made us, not we ourselves. And because he made us, he made us with certain capacities. But that means something else, very, very important. It means this, because we're uniquely created, we are uniquely responsible. All those things we're responsible to before God. And so if you notice in our passage of scripture, in, uh, and also on our uh, bulletin, it says in uh, Psalm 100, in verse number 3, it says also this, It is he who made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So human beings are are unique 
but they are also uniquely responsible. See, if it is God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has created us and we are directly responsible to him, we, and not ourselves, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So we are uniquely responsible because God is a sovereign creator. Contemporary thinking says that man is the product of evolution. But the Bible says we are created by a personal God to love and to serve and to enjoy endless fellowship with him. That means that he has authority over our lives. And we owe him absolute allegiance, obedience, and worship. Now I've described a, a pretty grand and, and wonderful creature. But we, I have to ask another question. What happened? What went wrong? Well, man still has great capacities, that, and all the ones that I just described, but a crooked twist entered into creation. And that crooked t- twist is called sin. And even in the lost state of sin, even when we're separated spiritually from God, we are still responsible to him. If we just gaze upon the human scene, you'll quickly notice that something is desperately wrong. That's what all the news is about. Everything's gone wrong. Everything seems to be disjointed and crooked and upside down. See, humans lost their understanding of the desire of the true and living God. And the reason why is because they have sinned against God. They have been in rebellion against God. It was James Packard, a theologian, who who said something very significant concerning uh, how one looks at sin. He says sin is not a social concept. He said sin is a theological concept. What he means is that sin is not something that happens to us because of our, our surroundings are bad or we didn't have enough education or we didn't have a good role model or whatever we may put in there because our social settings weren't the right. It's, it's something we are. All humans are born sinners and will sin no matter what surroundings or social settings they find themselves, no matter how much education they have or they don't have. See, when God created Adam and Eve, they were perfect. They lived in a perfect world. They enjoyed perfect relationship with the Creator. And God gave them one law in the garden, in the, in the uh, book of Genesis. He said this, listen, everything is yours, Adam and Eve, everything except this one tree. He said this to them, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil. That's mine. Don't touch that. He held... He actually told them what would happen if they did. It says, you will eat it and you will surely die. You will die, separ- you will die spiritually. You'll be separated from me. You will die physically. You'll begin to grow old and die physically. And if you don't come to know the Creator as your own Lord, you will die eternally. That is the second death. But Adam and Eve, 
didn't listen to God. They broke God's law. They chose their own way and disobeyed God. And where, whenever human beings fall short of meeting the standard God has set, the breaking of that standard is called disobedience. It shows that we are actually in rebellion against the Creator, that we are actually setting ourselves up as the own authority and not God. So we're not submitting to them. We're saying to ourselves, listen, I'm going to do it my own way. And that's basically what sin is. That's the essence of sin. The essence of sin is disobedience. I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to live my life my my own way. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm not going to listen to you. That's what sin is. So all kinds of things can go under that umbrella. But see, we're uniquely responsible because God is sovereign, but we're also uniquely responsible because God is holy. That God is morally perfect and pure, set apart from all of the other things. God requires holiness of us as well. In, on your bulletin, it says in 1 Peter Chapter 1 and verse 16, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. You shall be set apart unto me, for me, for my purpose, for my good. So you shall be set apart for those things. So since the day that sin entered into the world, every descendant from Adam has been born sinful, including me, including you. Sin has caused problems, guilt, a crooked twist in the fabric of all human existence. Man has has taken what his creator created good and twisted it into something evil. That's what we have done. See, God sets the standard. Not us. I, I used this illustration because I thought it was a good one about when the Olympics come along, I really do like watching uh, gymnastics because of how incredible those people train to do those moves. But not many understand how gymnastic events are scored. Every, everyone looks super to me. I mean, it's hard to tell who's better unless someone falls off a bar. How do the judges know who is the best? Gymnastics is measured by how well a move is executed, how the feet and the hands move and the body arches, how difficult the moves are, how the landings are to be done. But most of us don't know what we're looking for. We might, we, may, we might not, not even see the mistakes, but the judges, they know what is perfect. It's written down. They watch to see how close the athlete comes to the standard. All the gymnasts know the standard for a perfect performance. Most never make a per- perfect performance, but all aim for it. Now, life is not an Olympic event like gymnastics, but in some ways, the two are similar. Our God is holy, and he is perfect. He cannot allow sin into his presence, 
And just as most gymnasts fall short of reaching the standard, all human beings fall short of reaching the standard God has set for us. And the standard God has set for us is perfection. Be perfect, for my Father in heaven is perfect. The only way we can ever enter into God's presence if we are perfect. But you're saying to yourself, well, no one's perfect. Right, exactly. That's the point. Why aren't we perfect? Because sin has entered in and corrupted us. Made us unlike what we ought to be. Given us affections and desires that go opposite of God, what God wants for us. So what is sin? The most common word for sin in the New Testament is the Greek word harmatia, which literally means to miss the mark. When humans sin, they are missing the mark of God's righteous standard. And at the same time, of course, they are hitting something else, and that's unrighteousness. That is why many Old Testament passages of scriptures will describe sin as rebellion, as wickedness, as crookedness, as selfishness, as lawlessness when referring to the sin of man. There's many words that describe what happened. See, sin is a violation of the standard set by God, a violation against the one who set the standard. So consequently, when humans sin, they put themselves up against God himself. So we're uniquely responsible because God is sovereign, he is holy, but we're responsible too because we are sinners. We have fallen short. And according to the Bible, from birth, we reject God and disobey him. If you notice on your, your sheet, uh, your bulletin in Psalm. Note, notice what it says in Psalm 53, verse number one. It, very unique passages of Scripture. It says, "The fool has said in his heart, there is no God." Then in verse number three, it says, "Every one of them has turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one." Now, that's the Creator looking at humanity. And judging humanity and saying, listen, you've all missed the standard. Because my standard's up here and you've fallen short of it. And you've fallen short of it because of sin. Everyone is guilty of sin. That's because the standard is not human, it's divine. Now, this is obviously... This obviously does not mean that we are incapable of performing acts of kindness. We, we can. And compared to others... We may be kind sometime, but compared to someone who is perfectly kind and perfectly good and perfectly righteous all the time, our kindness and our goodness and our righteousness fall short of the mark. See, scriptures tell us that we have all sinned in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And all indicates that sin is universal. It's a universal malady of all of mankind. It's found everyone, where and in everyone. So falling short indicates that there is a requirement that is set before mankind. The standard God sets for a man is God himself. That's the standard. The standard's God. And all mankind drastically 
falls short of that standard every time, all the time. And it is not that all humans are as bad as they could be, but that all humans have the potential to be the worst of sinners. Humans do not have a good standing before God because this sin has caused devastating effects amongst humans and, of course, in the relationship with God. And it says in Romans 6.23 on your sheets there, it says, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. See, death, what is death anyway? Death is really, of course, physical death causes separation between us and the person, right? They're here one second. It's amazing. They're here one second and they're gone. You can't contact them. You can't write them an email. You can't text them. They're gone. There's no communication at all. They're separate from you. And that's the pain of death, is the separation that you feel. Here, the Bible is saying, listen, because of sin, you're separated from God. You're dead. You don't want to respond to God. You are dead. So the truth found here is that sin brings separation. Essentially, death is separation. That physical death separates the body from the soul. Spiritual death brings a separation from God the Creator. Because of this separation... Man is devoid of spiritual life. And humans feel empty and purposeless and lonely and worthless. Man tries to remove this separation through all kinds of means, but yet without success. They buy things, they take drugs, they drink, they, they travel, they, they spend money, they live for money, they get things, they accumulate things, and then at the end, you still feel empty. You still feel, what's the purpose? What's the point? After all those things. See, the bad news is all have sinned. And sin leads to death, which is eternal separation from God. The scriptures are clear that because of God's holy justice, sin will not go unpunished. But at the same time, We are uniquely responsible because this sin that we've committed against God demands a penalty due to our failure to live up to the standard of God's holiness. We are currently under his wrath and upon death we will be justly condemned to an eternity in hell. It says in Hebrews on your sheets inasmuch as it is appointed for man to die once after this comes judgment. Now, I'm painting a very bleak picture for you, but one very needed. Because if we don't see ourselves in this condition before God, then we'll never, ever ask the question, what must I do to be saved? We'll never, ever say, well, I really, do I really, I don't really, do I really need God? We'll never get the questions answered unless we're connected back to the one who created us. We'll never find the joy of life unless we're connected back to the Lord. We'll never find what true service is until we're connected back to God. We'll never know what it means to enter into the presence of God unless we're connected back to him. 
See, it must be, we must learn the bad news. And the real condition, the human condition, if not, we will never know the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, God must judge sin because he's perfect. He's a perfect judge. And the only way that we can be saved from that judgment is to have a personal trust in God's solution to our own sin problem. And of course, that is Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross and rose from the dead to pay the penalty for lost sinners, like it says in Isaiah 53 on your sheets. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. What, but what? But the Lord has caused the iniquity, that's the sin, of all of us to fall on Christ. So in the end, hell is the proper punishment for a man's sin. Jesus Christ frequently spoke about hell and warned people of the dangers of going there. See, hell is described in Scripture as a furnace of unquenchable fire, a place of everlasting judgment, where its victims are tormented in both their bodies and their minds in accord with their sin and their sinful natures. We're also uniquely responsible because all are helpless to save ourselves. The Bible teaches that we are totally unable to do anything about our future punishment. Neither can we do anything to gain favor with God. And in our, on your sheets, if you notice Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, man on the inside has corruption and death. And man on the outside with his fellow man is engaged in combat with others and with God, his creator, and is at enmity with him. Therefore, the wrath of God is upon him. The entrance of sin into the human race has wrecked havoc everywhere, in everything, and in every human. Only God can take what sin made crooked and make it straight. Only he can do that. So that means this, that you and I are uniquely responsible because Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Only God, through Jesus Christ, can save us from the wrath, his own anger and the condemnation that has been laid upon us because of our sin. And why Jesus, you may be asking? Well, because he is God and Lord of all. That he became man. He lived a sinless life and became the sacrifice for sin. He died in the place of sinners to provide the way of salvation for those who believe. And then he rose from the dead, defeating our greatest enemy, death, both physical, spiritual, and eternal death. And he conquered Satan and now possesses authority to give eternal life to all who ask. You know, 
by the way, who is the creator specifically? Well, in the Gospel of John, it says that Jesus is, is the creator. In the Gospel of John, it also says Jesus is the Lamb of God. In the Gospel of John, it also says Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It says in the Gospel of John that Jesus is God. That he is all those things until we are connected back to the Father through Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. There's not salvation through religion. There's salvation through a relationship, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So, see, everyone who's a human being is uniquely responsible to believe in the command to trust in Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 16, verse 31, it says simply, They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved in your household. And then in Acts chapter 20, it tells us how that's done. It says this, it says repentance towards God. And it says it like this, repentance, repentance means to turn from your wrong way, to turn from your unbelief toward God the Father, towards the Creator. And the only way you can do that is by the rest of the passage in Acts 20, 21, repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus is the solution. Repentance is a conscious recognition that you are a sinner, that you are confessing your sins to him and making a conscious choice to turn from sin to the Savior Jesus Christ who can forgive you who can make you right with him and make you perfect in Christ and to take you to be in his presence. It isn't enough to believe certain facts about Jesus. Even Satan and his demons believe there is one true God. It says it in James. It says they believe and they tremble. So that's not enough just to believe that. See, belief has to have content to it. They don't love and obey Jesus Christ. They just know he's God. A lot of people know there's a God, and they, of course, formulate their own God to worship. But see, that is idolatry. True saving faith always responds with obedience to the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. That's the only way because someone has to die in your place. Someone has to pay the penalty for your sin and my sin. Someone has to satisfy the perfect justice of the judge. Someone has to do that. We cannot do that. No human being could do that. The only one who could do it is Jesus Christ the Son. He's the only one. And anybody who knows that and has come to know him can never go back. See, saving faith comes to anyone who turns their back on any confidence in their own flesh for salvation because no amount of of personal effort, no amount of good works, no amount of religious deeds can earn you a place with God in heaven. Nothing could do that. Saving faith 
really does mean that you come to the end of yourselves. You really come to say, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I can't rescue me from my dead spiritual condition. I can't do in any, any, any of those things. That I really have no self-reliance. There's nothing to rely upon. I have no righteousness to give God. In fact, the Bible says that if you try to give righteousness, righteousness to God, your righteousness is like filthy rags. It's worthless before God. See, it's really trusting absolutely in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and for moral and spiritual renewal and for eternal life. That being a Christian is more than identifying yourself with a particular religion or affirming a certain value system. Being a Christian means you have embraced what God says in the Bible about himself, about your condition, and about how to be made right with him through Christ Jesus. It means renouncing yourself and following Jesus Christ. Why? Because we are uniquely created, making us uniquely responsible before that creator. And nobody can get out of it. No one can get out of it. So my question to you is, where are you at? Where are you today? If it was time for God to call you home, to call you from this earth, where would you be? Where would you end up? Do you know right now, if you were to die today, where you would go? There's only two places. There's not a third and a fourth place. Either you go into the presence of God to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, right? To await your bodily resurrection in the presence of God. Or you go, because of sin, God has to separate you from himself forever, and that place is called hell. And of course, ultimately, it's the lake of fire. It's a place where God has to cast someone who cannot be in his presence because they're not made perfect by Christ's Christ resurrection, by, by, by Christ's sacrificial death, where the, their sin is washed away and they're made clean by the blood of Christ. See, God can't let that person in. He doesn't take delight, it says in Psalms, in the death of his saints. He doesn't take delight in the death of people. But sin has caused this situation that we're in. And the only solution to that situation is to believe in Jesus Christ alone as your own personal Lord and Savior. That is the only thing. Jesus should never be thought of as an add-on to what you're already believing. And when you come to Christ, everything goes. Christ has to be the final and ultimate solution to your sin problem. If you try to add them on to what you're already doing, that's just making Jesus an idol. An idol that is corrupted and not the true and living God. So, you're responsible, I'm responsible. And the time, the Bible says, is now. You and I always stand at the edge of eternity. Never knowing how much time we have left. So you need to trust Christ now. And according to the word of God, if you notice what it says in 2 Corinthians 6.2 right here in the bulletin. Now the acceptable time 
Now is the acceptable, acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The day when you hear from the word of God and you're still alive, you still have all the human capacities to respond because the Spirit of God makes you alive from the dead to believe. If God's working in your heart and you nef- never trusted Christ, today is the day to ask him to save you. And why is that? Because Jesus is inviting you. It says in our, the last passage on your sheet, who would you want to invite you? Knowing that you're a sinner under God's condemnation and wrath, who would you want to invite you to something? Well, you would want somebody who is caring. Somebody who understands your situation. Someone who actually can actually save not just your physical body, but your eternal soul. And someone who could actually give you rest and hope. Who would you want that to be? Look what it says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is Jesus speaking here. See, Jesus is the kind of person you want to come to. He's the one who was your substitute. He died in your place. He's the one who took the wrath of God for you. He's the one who took the full condemnation for every thought, sinful thought, every sinful action, every sinful word that you ever spoke and I ever spoke was taken by Jesus Christ on the cross. He was the Lamb of God. He was perfect. He didn't have to die there. He died for us. He died in the place of us. So if you come to him and receive him, repent and turn and receive Jesus Christ as a solution to your sin. The Lord says that anyone who comes to me comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. God knows our condition. He knows who we are. Come. It was one 17th century preacher named Thomas Boston who gave an invitation one time to a congregation. And this is what he said to them. He said, I would admonish you then to come to Christ that you may partake of his spirit. Christ is saying to you today, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Come and I will pour out upon you to be more particular who would exalt you. Come to Christ, O you dead and lifeless sinner who are lying rotting under the power of of your lust, who has a heart within thee that cannot repent and mourn and let go of the death grip it has taken on the world and on sin. Come, drooping and fainting and dispirited soul who, ha- who is a- harassed, who has terrors and torments, who is pierced with fearful apprehensions, whose heart is like a stone dying within thee. His spirit 
is a spirit of life and light and comfort. Come today. He binds up the brokenhearted. Come, hard-hearted sinner who has nothing to give. Come, His Spirit can soften your heart. His Spirit will make you alive. His Spirit will take away your stony heart and give you a heart of flesh. See, God invites us to come. Come to Jesus today. Why? Because you are uniquely created by Jesus Christ. And you and I are uniquely responsible to Jesus Christ. That's why. And that's not only found in the Word of God, but the same Word of God, the same God who's the center of God's Word is the same God who created everything we see with our eyes, everything we feel, everything we experience in this creation. And it's Jesus Christ is the answer. No matter where you come from, no matter what background you have, Jesus Christ is the answer. And all God's people said what? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that the word of God is true. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God who cannot lie, but only can tell us the truth. But Lord, I I must admit that the truth hurts. The truth is painful. But Lord, let your word be true in every man a liar. I just pray this morning that if someone has not come to know you as their own Lord and Savior, today may be the day. I pray, Lord, that you would push out anything from them that's blocking them. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would cause them to be regenerated and born again so they can not only see the kingdom, but they can enter the kingdom. I pray that for us. Bless us today, Lord, in all that you do. And Lord, even the good food that we're going to partake of at the firehouse, this Thanksgiving dinner is also attributed to your goodness. We can actually enjoy these things that come from your hand. And so I pray, Lord, today that from this psalm, it could be us who could honestly say, I have joy in the Lord. I want to serve the Lord. I know the Lord. I can enter the Lord's courts and I can give thanks to Him honestly today because I have taken the Father's solution to my sin and believed wholeheartedly in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that for us. And I thank you, Lord, for what you'll do. I give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.